Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and has ever wondered about them. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and its sequels, and the Top Secret Diary of Celie Valentine series. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Broen. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related question. And in this episode, we consider the way that an author can use the roominess of a book to take a seemingly narrow topic and then explode it in surprising ways. Specifically for this episode, we're looking at the impact that having a street address or not having a street address can have on people, and also how what's in the name of a street is so much more important than just a name. We came to this episode in such a fun way for me. It turns out that I clerked for the same judge as the author of this book, Deirdre Mask. Deirdre and I clerked for Judge Nina Gershon at different times, so we don't really know each other, but we both love Judge Gershon. She's phenomenal. And I get together with Judge Gershon periodically, and we talk about books, among other things. And on a Zoom visit recently, Judge Gershon mentioned that Deirdre had written a great book about street addresses. It's called The Address Book, What Street Addresses Reveal About Identity, Race, Wealth, and Power. And so she told me about this book and I thought, oh my word, I've got to read it. And I think before I I bought it and before I read it, I emailed you and I said, don't you think that this is going to be a great book for an episode? Yes. In fact, the moment you told me the title, I knew it was going to be my kind of thing. You know, this oddball, I've never thought about that before, but it turns out it's got so much in it and I learned so much. It was Terrific. Let's tell you a little bit about Deirdre. Deirdre Mask is a lawyer, a writer, and sometime academic. Her work has appeared in The Atlantic, The Guardian, The New York Times, The Economist, Lit Hub, The Harvard Law Review, The New Hibernia Review, The Dublin Review, and Irish Pages. The Address of Book is her first book, and it was named one of Publishers Weekly 10 Best Books of 2020. We started by asking Deirdre when and how she realized that there was a fascinating book waiting to be written about street addresses. I'm not a natural person to write a book about street addresses. I wasn't really that kid, you know, scanning the globe and looking at maps. One of my daughters is very much like that now. It just really came about almost by accident. I had sent a card to my dad in America and I was living in Ireland at the time. And I was just like, okay, so I pay Ireland this money for a stamp. But how does the postman in North Carolina where my parents live, how does he get paid all this? So this sent me into this like deep dive into this organization called the Universal Postal Union. They set sort of world postal rates and this becomes sometimes quite contentious. But one of the projects that they had there was something that was called, I believe it's called Addressing the World, an Address for Everyone, where it just made this point that like billions of people in the world don't have street addresses, or at least nothing we would recognize as being a formal street address. And that this was actually one of the ways of lifting people out of poverty and, and, and you know, including them in broader society. And they listed all of these benefits of having a street address. And I genuinely, it never occurred to me before that point that there were places in the world that didn't have street addresses. So then I started going into the academic literature on that. And I found this really interesting article about West Virginia, which is pretty close to where I grew up in North Carolina and rural West Virginia didn't have 
addresses. And there was this project to basically give addresses to rural West Virginians because of ambulances getting to their houses, being able to reach them easily. So as I went to, ended up going to West Virginia, when I went home, borrowed my dad's car and went, I ended up writing a short article for The Atlantic. It was great. After this article in The Atlantic came out about it, I got all these really interesting letters from people about like these crazy stories about their street addresses. So I kept collecting all these files. And soon I just looked at all this material and I was like, this is so much more than an article. You know, this is really a book. You begin the book with the fact that the New York City Council devotes an astonishing amount of attention to passing laws to change street names, even though the streets have long had names. Exactly. There is plenty of other, there are plenty of other issues to take their time. Why did you choose to start the book there? And how hard was it to choose a beginning? Oh, gosh, that's a great question. This was actually a statistic that was kind of buried in an academic article I read that in some years, there's almost, I believe it's 40% of city council legislation involves street names. And, and when I say involves street names, usually it's, and you, and you see this if you know Manhattan, you know, you walk around and you see, you know, one of the numbered streets, but it'll have a commemorative name under it. So the city council was just devoting huge amounts of time towards all of these street name changes and not even just street name changes, also playground name changes and just names became extremely important. And this totally baffled me because New York, you know, it's an old city. So we have street names, but more importantly, we have the grids. We have these numbered street names. Why was this such an important thing? And I think it sort of captured captured something that names really matter to people and commemorating memory used to be kind of different. It used to be kind of lived in your family and you kind of understood things, but things are moving so fast now that we feel the need to pin down memory and pin down our values in things like monuments and archives. And as I argue, street names. So this sort of becomes part of this process of trying to pin down on the landscape, what matters to us. And New York, a lot matters to a lot of people. Yeah, 40% is just a mind-boggling number. And now, actually, it's a lot less because what they've started to do is bundle them. But when they did them individually, it was nearly 40% in some years. The subtitle of your book is What Street Addresses Reveal About Identity, Race, Wealth, and Power. Yeah. But I feel like it could have also included community, psychology, historical narratives. So how, how did you decide on an organizational structure for the book? Yeah. That's really kind that you say, how did I decide? Because that, that, that implies that this is something I sat down to think about. Every chapter sort of purportedly is really about a place and a certain time. So I have, you know, Victorian London or South Africa before and after apartheid. But often in those chapters, I also sort of put lots of other places and times and things, which makes it sound like a bit of a roller coaster, which I imagine sometimes it is a bit. So I think at some point I kind of had these ideas and and the subtitle kind of reflects that, you know, things like identity and class and race. Power is really interesting. You know, the power to name, you know, God gave Adam the power to name all of the animals. This occurs very, very early in the Bible to show his dominion over them, right? And he also, you know, names Eve, which is problematic. There are instantly obvious benefits to having a clear street address. You know, an ambulance can find you, UPS can find you. But you found some benefits in communities that don't have street addresses, too. Can you say a little bit more more about that? Absolutely. Yes. This was, again, something that really surprised me. And this really came out when I was in West Virginia, you know, very early on on this trip where I would be talking to lots of people, people who were signing addresses. And they would often point out that a lot of people didn't want addresses. And I would ask why. And sometimes they would say things like, oh, you know, they're just ignorant or uneducated. And these aren't people who really understand. 
And so I kind of like, okay, well, you know, I don't think it's that, but there's something more here. And it was interesting because it was really only when I started to look at the history of addresses and the history of house numbering to see how much 18th century Europeans who first got their house numbers, how much they rebelled against them, that I really began to understand if you have a number and an address, people can find you really easily. And more important, the state can find you really easily. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of good reasons you want the state to find you. You want an ambulance to come to your house, I would think, largely. You want your mail to get to you, to your door. These are all the benefits and these are all the reasons why we find it hard to imagine living without one. But also, you know, the state can tax you. They can imprison you. They can draft you. You can get junk mail to send. People you don't know can find you. And there are all sorts of reasons, some of them nefarious, but some of them not, that you don't want to be found. And so this is why we have this idea about being off grid, right? Like there's something freeing about being off the grid. There's something about not being, you know, connected and not being seen. So actually, I really, I totally disagree with people who were saying that about people in West Virginia. I think they were extremely smart. And I think they saw something that we don't see, that we're so used to being seen and mapped by the state that we don't even realize we're seen. But they knew it. They knew they were hidden and they didn't want that cloak lifted. Yeah. And I think you said too that, they interact maybe a little differently because of it or see space a little differently? Yeah. I am not great in general with maps, as I said. And so, you know, I was constantly stopping for directions and I loved their directions. Like there was one place, I believe it was Bartley. And these are tiny communities. These are like 200 people, some of them, you know. I think the biggest town in the county that I was in, McDonough County, is, God, maybe 2,500 people. I mean, these are tiny places. And so you would say things like, um, like there was one community, they pivot around something called the Bartley School, but you realize this Bartley School burned down like 20 years before, right? And so they, they see their landscape, they like see all of this history. And also really interesting, there's one point I was trying to find someone who, who really wanted an address at some point. He lived in this sort of unincorporated community. And I ended up asking all these people and got really lost. And but then at one point I asked this pastor who was sitting in this truck, you know, trucker cap, and sort of, he's trying to go, oh, I know, I know Alan. And he said, do you know where I live? And it was just totally bizarre. I was like, I'm a stranger. This is what I mean. Like people in that community, they know each other. They know the landscape. They know the history. They know where the old sewing factory was. They know where the drive-in movie theater is. They know that. And so there's something actually quite lovely about that. And I couldn't give directions like this to my house in North Carolina. You know, I don't remember what grove of trees is there or what color the barn is at the end of the road. I, I couldn't tell you. So yeah, so there is something about the imagination, maybe about the history of a place that I think probably is lost once we get these more standardized forms of describing where we are. One thing I love about the book is is these constant complexities, right? You were talking about how the folks in West Virginia might have a particularly interesting connection to history because they remember the schoolhouse. They still give directions based on it. And yet, you know, a lot of the book talks about how street names are connected to history. Um, And you were saying there's a sense of community in these spots without the street addresses, but also you talk about how they can help you feel like more of a member of society or a community. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because if you think about it, if you don't have a street address. I mean, most people, to be fair, do have phones. Almost everybody said they had a phone. But if you don't have a street address, you can't communicate with people you don't know. The people who don't know you can't find you. And this is kind of a problem because especially in a lot of communities, and a lot of sociological research has borne this out, that often the people who can most help you aren't the people you know. They're people in government institutions far away from you or, you know, people in workplaces or all these other places. So you kind of become a community partly by having these street addresses. There's a psychological belonging. And and early on, I think one of the very early calls I did was with this election official in South Africa. 
a black election official. And he said that when he was a kid, he had a cousin who had an address and they thought he was very glamorous. And I said, <laughs> I never would have thought glamorous and having an address would go together. And he would make this point that in the village, people would even like make their own numbers on the house. You know, like even though it didn't really mean anything, and and I was laughing, and he was laughing, because now he like he, he saw this. But you know, this was something that was kind of about belonging. And again, I've made this point before, but like we tend to count things that we value. If your house burned down, you could give a list of all the you know your TV and your bed and your computer and all sorts of other things, but you couldn't talk about the bottle of hand sanitizer that was sitting in your bathroom or the coins that were on the floor because they just don't really matter. And same if you lost your wallet, you know, you could remember the $50 bill, but probably not the coins because you didn't really care. And I think when you don't give people addresses or they don't have them, I think they recognize that they're about those coins that didn't care, like, you know, that we don't care about, like, you know, you didn't even bother to find us. Like I'm not even somebody worth finding and naming. Sure. Yeah. You spoke a little bit about the way addresses can connect to history. And in your book, you talk about Nelson Mandela's reluctance to sometimes change the names of the streets and the buildings and the monuments, even when they commemorated this regime that imprisoned him and brutally oppressed Black Africans. Can you talk a little bit about why he opposed changing those names? And what do you think of that? Yeah, you know, I think before I started writing this book and researching that chapter on South Africa, I had a very school child's view of Nelson Mandela as just sort of this saint. The complexity and the sheer task that he took on, it completely blows my mind that he did what he did. Obviously, he had these oppressors who had imprisoned him and degraded him and killed many of his countrymen. And yet he understood very early on that a path to, to peaceful understanding the other side and understanding identity. So, you know, he studied Afrikaans. He took all these exams in Afrikaans. He tried really hard to get to know what the other side was like. And then when he was released, you know, he made all of these conciliatory efforts. And one of the things he did also was not undertake a massive wholesale renaming of things, even named after, you know, the big architects of apartheid, because he knew that this was going to be something very dramatic, that there was something very real about changing the names. And part of it is that, and as the book goes into it, you know, name changing after regime change of streets is just a, a given, you know, for a lot of places. There's a, a street in Vukovar in Croatia that's been changed, names have been changed six times, you know, in a century, basically, mm-hmm. because of all the different regime changes. So, so he knew it would be so obvious when you started changing. Well, this is what I think Mandela was thinking, but I think it's a pretty good guess was that, you know, he would say, I didn't want to change them because he didn't want to upset too many people. And so what this did was that this led to this peaceful regime change in part because he was understanding that this affront to the identity and that there was this need to make it a rainbow nation to include everyone. I completely admire this approach. But what you could argue now and what a lot of people do argue now about modern South Africa is that, you know, a lot of the dynamics of the country, the problematic dynamics, sometimes the most problematic dynamics like um, income inequality, of which South Africa is among the very worst in the world, happened because there wasn't this radical revolution. You know, there weren't land shifts. You know, Mandela wasn't willing to take those strides to be really radical. And now a lot of people are saying, look, we should have been more radical, you know, even if it had led to bloodshed, because then we would have had a real revolution. Now, I'm not one to judge at all, but, you know, I think his approach to street names really reflects his desire for a seamless and bloodless transition. Deirdre's discussion of Nelson Mandela's approach to street addresses made me think of all of the street names that we still have in the United States named for Confederate leaders. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Some of what she said in the book made me realize the genius, really, of naming streets for leaders of causes like the Confederacy. Because in the long term, people start to think 
My children played on Nathan Bedford Forest Street. I met my husband there. Stop telling me he was the first Grand Wizard of the KKK. That's ancient history. They start to take on a contemporary significance to people that makes them feel like they can just overlook the past. But when the past is that insidious, when their connection to an evil cause really is so stark, then there he is, whoever the street is named for, shaping the landscape of the city all these years later. He's really still there. Yeah, and it's such a contrast to how they approach these things in Germany, right? Where it's against the law to name anything after someone from the Nazi party. And it reminded me of Isabel Wilkerson's new book, Cast, which I had been reading around the time that we talked to Deirdre. In Cast, Isabel Wilkerson talks about how there are hundreds of schools and streets named for Robert E. Lee. But can you just imagine if there were a school or a street named for, for example, Himmler? Right. Yeah. Just never yeah. been okay. Yeah. You know, and people say, oh, but he was a great general. And like, so was Himmler, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I know. Well, and Deirdre points out in the book that although there are no streets named for Nazis in Germany, the complexity of this interplay between street names and history is still readily apparent there. There are still streets called Jews Street, Jew Road, Jew Path. In fact, there are more than 300 streets with the word Jew in the name, which is weird. Yeah. <laughs> so, it does so seem really weird. Yeah. Can yeah. you imagine living on Jew Street? Right. Isn't it sort of obvious by my name? You know, we don't need to put it on a sign. <laughs> right. So we asked Deirdre about that. And this is what she said. This really comes out of this work of this amazing artist, her name is Susan Hiller, who had this experience of being in Berlin on a fellowship where she saw all these Jew streets and she was very surprised by them. You know, like, what is what is Jew streets? You know, that sounds like it was something meant to degrade Jewish people. And so she she went to look at that. And, 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 and this goes back to the history of street names in general. And we often think of street names now as being commemorative, which is what we've been talking about. You know, streets named after Robert E. Lee, you're commemorating this man. But, you know, obviously a lot of streets were just named, you know, because what was there, you know, market Street, Church Street, you know, you see this in central London, you know, my UK publishers on the street called Cloth Fair, which I love. But obviously that was like some medieval cloth fair there, I assume. And I guess in Germany, this was basically the same, you know, they were Jew streets. And these were places where in the history of Germany, and obviously is discrimination even the right word, but I'll use that discrimination against Jews, was something that existed in Germany long, long before World War II. And you can see this in the history of the names because there were streets where Jews lived on and there were places where Jewish people were allowed to live. I think the most haunting ones, and Susan Hiller took pictures of all of these and made it into a film. Basically, there's some Jew paths, which were sometimes around towns where Jews weren't allowed to walk through the town, so they had to walk around the town. And it's more complicated even than it just being that, you know, these were ghettos that they were forced into. These were locked from the inside and the out because it was also dangerous. Jewish people were also afraid and often for good reason of outsiders. So sometimes these were both places where they were forced to live, but also places where they bounded together for protection. So, you know, a lot of these Jew streets disappeared during World War II. You know, the Nazis, it was, you know, the, one of the very first things they did, as you do, was rename the streets. You know, not only did they rename streets after Hitler, but they stripped the street names named after Jewish people as well. They stripped them off and Jew streets as well. So, but these Jew streets still exist in Germany. You know, these were historical street names mm -hmm. that were restored. Yeah. And continuing with this idea of commemorative street names, I'm going to ask you a question that actually serves as the title of one of your chapters. Hmm. 
What do Martin Luther King Jr. streets reveal about race in America? Yeah, I mean, streets of Martin Luther King had always really interested to me, partly because I remember really well that Chris Rock had this joke that was something along the lines of, you know, if you find yourself on a Martin Luther King Street run. And people laughed because it was a funny joke because it was the idea that people kind of had this common understanding that streets named after Martin Luther King were bad streets. So I started to look into this, you know, why are Martin Luther King Jr. streets seen this way? There are lots of reasons, you know, often... People uh, named Martin Luther King Jr. streets in the black neighborhoods because, you know, it was seen to commemorate somebody black and people in white parts of town didn't want to have them. And sometimes they were purposely put in uh, poor parts of black neighborhoods to, quote unquote, inspire the residents. One thing I, I came that I thought was very interesting, there's been questions about, is this statement of Chris Rock actually true? Mm-hmm. Some geographers did this did this study where they compared Martin Luther King Jr. streets to, say, um, John F. Kennedy streets or Main streets. And they basically found that they weren't economically worse, but what they found was that they were economically different. They had more churches and more schools, but, say, fewer lawyers' offices or fewer doctors' offices. And one of the reasons that you can extrapolate from this is that you know, during segregation, you know, black people were, were kept from white collar jobs. You know, they were pastors and they were school teachers. Those were the white collar jobs. So in some sense, the, the makeup of, of this MLK streets, when you look at it historically, actually makes a lot of sense. I became kind of interested in this as an economic study because then I started to wonder, are we right about Martin Luther King Jr. streets actually being worse? Or do we just associate Martin Luther King Jr. streets so closely with black streets and we have this feeling that black streets are bad streets? Um, and, and maybe in that sense, you know, even if we regenerate these streets, people won't feel any differently about them. I mean, I hope I'm wrong. Yeah. But it's food for thought and thinking about how we think about race in America, I think, you know, on a very small level. Yeah, it's so interesting. One of the sections that I loved the most in the book was the section about the significance of street addresses for public health, which seems particularly apt right now. Yes, absolutely. Can you say a little about the impact that street addresses have had on epidemiology? Yes, I absolutely can. It was really interesting. I mean, it was, um, and basically that chapter tells the story of how in Victorian London, we have cholera, very different disease than COVID-19. You know, it's bacterial, it's spread entirely differently. But, you know, we have these cholera outbreaks. And in Victoria, London, they didn't really at that sense have much of a germ sense of disease, um, a, a germ theory of disease, sorry. So we have this doctor, is John Snow, who's just this amazing man. He was, you know, one of the early anesthesiologists. So he'd given anesthesiology to Queen Victoria when she was having her her last two children. But basically, in his spare time, he kind of lived near a slum in Soho, where there was this, you know, cholera outbreaks coming out. And he was constantly investigating cholera all over London. But when this one broke out, he was basically able to use death certificates and interviews with doctors to map out where cholera cases were. To make a long story short, he basically was able to isolate it to a certain pump. He convinces him to take the handle off the pump and the cholera epidemic goes away. It's more, it's a bit more complicated than that, but that's the simple kind of story about, you know, Jon Snow's discovery that cholera was spread through water. Amazing. So I was very interested in this because I had also been reading about how in Haiti, after the devastating earthquake, which I imagine people really remember, there was not only this devastating earthquake, but right after there was this also devastating outbreak of cholera in Haiti, which was really surprising to people because Haiti wasn't a, a place that had cholera before, or at least not for a very, very long time. So, you know, where did this come from? And interestingly, what Jon Snow did in Victorian London actually wasn't possible in Haiti because they don't have street addresses. In fact, they hardly had maps at all. And it actually is very difficult without mapping and without street addresses. It's really hard to isolate where people are. And so this was a challenge. And this is a, a huge challenge in much of the world that doesn't have street addresses. So I profile a, a nonprofit 
that was started in part by the chief logistician for Haiti after the earthquake. That's called Missing Maps, where they actually try to map places in advance of a crisis. Gaten, the logistician I talked about, he had also worked in Sierra Leone during Ebola. And he would say, you know, if I had had a map of Sierra Leone, we could have stopped it. Because, you know, tracking and finding people, as we know, and isolating them is hugely important in any disease outbreak. So countries that don't have them are at a significant disadvantage. You describe world mapping systems like What Three Worlds and Google's Plus Codes and whatever it is that Facebook is working on. What are the upsides and downsides to these kinds of systems? Oh, that's such a great question. So much of the book is about the downsides of not having an address. I think my initial approach was like, oh my gosh, this is going to save us. These digital solutions are going to save us. And they are really cool. You know, there's this company called What Three Words, which is basically assigned three words to every, I think, three meter by three meter square on earth. And you want people to come in your back door rather than your front door. And it's very precise. And Google Plus Codes has done something also very clever using GPS and coming up with these new addressing systems. And so in some ways, I was really excited about this until I wasn't really. (laughs) Obviously, I would use these. I'd find them quite useful. They're very useful, for example, for places that don't have addresses like playgrounds. But, you know, I started to think, why am I not that into these? Why am I not as excited about these? So there's a few reasons. One is obviously money. You know, so what three words, for example, is a private company that has locked up their addresses and patents. And they say they aren't replacing addresses. But, you know, when you're doing things like working with post offices, in places like Mongolia, which is what they do, you know, you are in some sense making people reliant on these. So I felt really uncomfortable with that. You know, I believe in open data and even Google Plus codes, which are open data, you know, it's still Google, you know, it still pulls people towards Google products. And I think I have a general reluctance that we've sold so much of our public space and public infrastructure and public utilities to private companies. But also I realized that it was about so much more than that, that we have so much meaning in our names. And yeah. I think everybody can kind of close their eyes and map their hometown by names and the houses you lived in in apartments and streets, you know, your conversation is really about names. And also, obviously, I find fascinating these debates about street names. These arguments, they divide communities, but they also create communities. You know, when people in Hollywood, Florida are arguing about these Confederate street names, they're also arguing about what they want their community to be like. They're arguing about, you know, the history of the Civil War. They're arguing about key moments in American history. They're arguing about segregation. They're arguing about rights. They're arguing about justice. I mean, I think that's really powerful. There's a sociologist who writes about this, an Israeli, sorry, not sociologist, a geographer, cultural geographer. And uh, I called him up one day and we were chatting about this. And I said, you know, what is it about this digital dresses? You know, why does it really get to me? And he sort of paused and he said, well, you know, we don't talk about Karl Marx but we will talk about Karl Marx Street. <laughs> yeah, I thought yeah. that really encapsulated a lot of the feelings that I had. These debates, you know, they really do become ways of uh, expressing the community's values or expressing how we see our place. Even in Hollywood, Florida, as it talks about with the Confederate street names, I mean, you could argue it would have been better if the city council had just changed the names. But I think there is something powerful about people having to come together and express these views in a public forum with their neighbors. I think as humans, we do put our memories and our values in these things. For better or for worse, that's the way we do things. And so, you know, what will we have when those disappear and we're just sort of points on a map and disconnected from our neighbors? I just love the range and complexity in Deirdre's writing and thinking. It's not just that this seemingly mundane topic of street addresses, which I, for one, completely took for granted. Oh yeah, completely. Yeah, right. <laughs> and yet she took it right from city council meetings in Manhattan to Jew Street in Germany to satellites in outer space. 
pinpointing the different addresses for our front and back doors. But in addition to sort of seeing the range of a topic, she's also really good at showing that issues just aren't straightforward. It can be good to have a street address, she argues compellingly, and it can be bad to have a street address, she sets out compellingly. It's a horrible idea to have Jew streets in Germany, and it kind of makes some sense to have Jew street in Germany. Um, you know, Confederate street names should be changed, and yes, they should be changed. Um, but was Nelson Mandela wrong to want to have a bloodless revolution and to not insist on changing street names in the service of that? Maybe he was, but it's not, you know, it's not crystal clear to me. No. And one of the things that I've been ruminating on since we talked to Deirdre and since I read her book is how street addresses are both a way to include people in government services, but they're also a way to exclude. So mm. she talks about how in India, not only do you need a street address to get a bank account, but you also need it for job applications and to register a child for school. I mean, all those layers of bureaucracy just to qualify for these very basic services and then, of course, I think about this country where in some places you need a street address in order to vote. And it just gets me wondering, when is an address more of a barrier than a key to entry? Yeah, it's all such an interesting reflection on society on the one hand. And it's also just like a plate of metal on a pole. You know? right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah. So I think that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. Be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast. You can find Deirdre at deirdremask.com or on Twitter as at Deirdre underscore mask. Many thanks to our associate producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Oh, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie.